It is good to be back. Don and I were gone for a week uh, to Montana. Of course, where else do we go? And uh, the draw of grandchildren and of aging uh, mothers. And so we checked on everybody over there. And our mothers are doing well. And our granddaughters are doing well. And it's nice to be able to play with them, spoil them, and then give them back to their mom and dad. So uh, we had a, a good week over there. And uh, we are glad to be back, though, and thankful for you all and for your prayers. And also thankful uh, for the elders and for Wes, who filled the pulpit last week. And uh, thankful that we have the ability to get away once in a while. It was good. Uh, those of you who are interested in baseball know we're in the middle of the World Series. In fact, today could be the last game if, uh, who is it, the Royals? If they win game uh, five here, uh, they may... Uh, win over that. And uh, for those of you who've played baseball, you probably know that it's a great metaphor for life. There's teamwork, there are rules, there's a plan. Uh, baseball is an amazing, amazing sport. And as uh, we know that, uh, I think last week, Wes, I heard use some sports metaphors uh, for life itself. And we have sports metaphors for you here this morning with baseball. One thing I've observed uh, in playing baseball in high school, and you might ask what position I played, and I always played left out. And uh, that, was, that, was, that was where I was supposed to be, I know that. Uh, but we've also noticed that uh, one of the things I like about baseball, you notice when they begin, the umpire says, play ball. He doesn't say work ball. And yet some people take it very seriously. And you may not have heard of Phil Wellman. He's a manager, or was. I don't know if he still is, but he was a manager for a double-A team, the Mississippi Braves. And I've got some film clip for you. The quality's a little low because they're taking the film through the backstop. But anyway, if we would catch the lights and play this little short video of a baseball manager... <laughs>
Can anybody tell me why managers wear uniforms? <laughs> kind of weird, but uh, you may have guessed it already, but as we work through Second uh, Peter chapter 1, we are looking at this list of virtues. There are eight virtues, and we come today to self-control. Now, there are some who have said that uh, Mr. Wellman was really out of control there, whereas there are others who say, no, he was very much in control, uh, but it sure uh, gave everybody a surprise in the theater of baseball. And uh, so we come today where it says, in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. Now, uh, I've done extensive word studies in the original languages, and uh, self-control means self-control. Some, If you use King James, it'll have temperance there, but now in our present day and age, the word temperance usually has only one slice of meaning to it, meaning abstaining from alcohol is what temperance usually means in our language and in our culture. Uh, But a broader word usage is self-control, which I believe most uh, translations use that terminology. As we're in the midst of this uh, virtue list in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 in Second Peter, uh, it is reflective of a number of other places in Scripture where we have what are called virtue lists, uh, and they vary somewhat. The most common parallel is what we would call the fruit of the Spirit, which the last quality in the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the same word. And uh, so we come today, and what does it mean to have self-control? We think we know, and that is the purpose of going through these virtues, uh, is to make sure we understand what Peter is telling us. In the first part of Second Peter, he is de- de- describing for us the nature of the believer, the nature of the believer in Jesus Christ, and it is the work of God. That is one of the primary distinctions in this chapter because we have a tendency as human beings to fall into one ditch or another. We tend to either fall in the ditch of being libertarians, in other words, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, or go into the other ditch of legalism, which basically says that I have this list of do's and don'ts, and we tend to gravitate towards that because that is appealing to the flesh. If I have a list of what makes me a good Christian and it's out of my effort, then that appeals to my flesh. And Paul militates against that in the little book of Galatians. So we come to these, and the key to understanding these qualities is they are not uh, a product of our flesh, of our own uh, purposeful desire in that sense. This is a work of God. Remember, as Bill read for us this morning, that he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises And he tells us that he has given us divine power in verse 3 that has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So the question remains is what is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? And it's not some nebulous measurement that we use or our list of do's and don'ts, but it is a list like this virtue list. Do these qualities show up in your life? And that is a question that comes to us, and it can become very convicting if we look very purposefully at each one of these qualities and determine and pray to God, is this thing showing up in my life? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to apply these principles in my life? 
Am I a person of the faith? First of all, that is the big question. Do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior? Is my faith in him growing in the midst of a life? Also, do I supply moral excellence? In other words, is moral excellence part of my life? And when I'm in sin, does God convict me of that and show me the way? And in your moral excellence knowledge, do I know more about God than just what I learned 20 years ago in a Sunday school class? Am I growing in the truth? And in our knowledge, self-control, self-control. So these evidences of the Holy Spirit's work, we can translate that as spiritual growth growth in the Christian life. These eight characteristics will be increasing. We never fully arrive, but they will be increasing. And this fourth quality of self-control comes up. So what is self-control? One definition is it's a physical and emotional self-mastery particularly in situations of intense provocation or temptation. We have examples throughout Scripture of what it means to be self-controlled. Think of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 and beyond. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. And uh, when he got out of prison, he was appointed this high position in a nobleman's house, and his wife tried to seduce him. He was falsely accused. He was self-controlled, but he was falsely accused and imprisoned. And uh, so we think of Joseph in Genesis. We think of David in 1 Samuel, where he is pursued by Saul. Remember, Saul was seeking to kill him, and David would not retaliate, even though there were those around him who would call upon him to retaliate against King Saul. And David exercised self-control in that situation. We think about Job, who lost his health, lost his wealth, lost his family. And his wife even told him to curse God and die. And he was afflicted by Satan in that. And uh, Job, in his integrity, had self-control, exercised it, even when his whole world fell apart. So there's an example of self-control. And, of course, the prime example is our Lord Jesus Christ. Many examples throughout the Gospels, even Isaiah 53, uh, where it tells us about Jesus Christ who was unjustly punished for us. He was the one who took our place. In Mark, in Matthew, in all the Gospels, uh, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy out of Isaiah, very self-controlled. And, of course, the Apostle Paul is another one. Uh, He talks about running the race. He was persecuted for his faith as an apostle, as all the apostles were persecuted for their faith, and yet they exercised great self-control in the face of that. Uh, So that brings us to the point of the second letter uh, of Peter here, and he's writing to warn the, the believers here in Jesus Christ, writing them to warn them about false teachers. Remember, 1 Peter was written about the persecution which comes from the outside, from the world. 2 Peter, he's writing and warning them about the danger of false teachers within their midst and the persecution that can occur. And so we need to be wise and careful in that. There are dangers to losing our self-control. I think if all of us were honest, we can reflect back on times in our lives where we have lost our self-control. We have lost self-control. I think of uh, other biblical examples We think of Saul, King Saul again. He hurled the spear at David. He was out of control uh, throughout most of his life. Amnon, which was one of David's sons, raped Tamar. He was out of control, and it caused destruction within his family. Moses, in Psalm 106, provoked 
uh, to anger, and he spoke rashly, it tells us there. So even the best of people, like Moses and David, still could lose self-control, and there was a payment to be made because of that. And so false teaching was leading to throwing off their restraints. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 2, and we will get to chapter 2 eventually, uh, that false teachers uh, can lead us into a loss of self-control. And so we have these warnings to us, but really self-control, what is it? What is self-control? And we would all probably admit that the biggest battle in this whole issue of self-control is not out here somewhere, but it's right in here in our hearts, isn't it? It's right here in our hearts and mind. The right kind of living, the biggest enemy is not out there. It is ourselves. And the principle of self-control is so vital. It's a quality which makes it possible to achieve the goals that God has set before us. The Greek word that's used here that is translated is a rare word in the New Testament. It occurs some seven times. Uh, but the root word that is translated, that is part of which this word comes out of, means power. It basically means power. And the word that's used here is to grab or to grab hold of or to grasp. That is the picture behind this word of self-control. And so that's probably where we get our idiom. When we talk to somebody who is emotionally getting out of control, we say, get a hold of yourself. In other words, take control, have power in your life in the sense of controlling your own emotions. This word, as I said, is only used seven times in the New Testament. And in, most every, in almost every situation, it is describing the importance of gaining and maintaining control and reigning over our passions and our desires. Because when we think about when we lose self-control, why do we lose self-control? It's because we are either fearful or uh, we are afraid we're going to lose something or something in that matter. Uh, Self-control is a battle that is fought with our minds, first and foremost of all. The mind controls our passions. Emotions are very powerful things. We do not want to deny that. God has made us as emotional creatures. But we also have a mind and a brain. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to control those passions and emotions. Uh, one thing that I was, uh, learned many years ago is other people don't make me angry. I make me angry. I have control over that emotion. Even though it's a battle all through my life that there is an issue that I need to recognize personally, and I think many others do too, that we need to work on this issue and recognize that we are in control. We have to get a grip on the power of controlling our emotion. It's a battle of the mind. And so we struggle with that. Well, there's three things that we need to learn today, and this is more of a a word study, a theological word study of this issue of self-control. Scripture has a lot to say about it, even though it may not use this same Greek word in the New Testament. But first of all, self-control is the mark of a wise person. All you have to do is read through Proverbs. If you are in the practice of reading a proverb, uh, chapter of Proverbs a day, you will start getting this theme about self-control throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. And we definitely do not want to be in the classification of a fool. In Proverbs chapter 1, uh, Solomon begins it. The proverb of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, 
to discern the sayings of understandings, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the naive, naive to, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a wise man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Uh, it's interesting, in the day that Peter and Paul lived in the first century, they lived in a Greco-Roman world. And in that day, it was the worst of days, if you will. We think we live in the worst of days. But if you go back and study the history of the first century in Greece and in Rome, uh, they were far more pagan than what we experience that we live in. Self-control actually was not known in the Greek culture. It was not a virtue to be held high. In fact, in the Greek culture, the whole concept of life was giving yourself to unrestrained passion. Whatever felt good, do it. Uh, that was the culture of the day that Peter and Paul wrote about. Even uh, today, we live in a culture that is sliding that direction, very much so. And so the people around Peter and Paul did not understand the concept of self-control, that someone could be in control of their passions, could be in control of all of that. And so that was the day, the context, historical context in which this was written. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought with a the price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Part of your body is your mind, your desires, your appetites, and all of these things can be good things unless they are twisted and we lack self-control in them. God says that the Christian who would walk in the fruit of the Spirit and in control of the Spirit, that our body is under control of the Holy Spirit and not under the control of our appetites and desires. Paul understood this very well in Romans chapter 7, the end of it, where he writes that I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I ought to do. And I think all of us recognize that, that the flesh tends to betray us in self-control. So self-control is the mark of a wise person. Secondly, self-control is an aspect of Christian character, an aspect of Christian character. This parallel virtue list that Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so uh, Paul writes this virtue list, and notice that the fruit there is singular. This is a package deal. And this is a work of the Spirit in our lives, just like the virtue list that Peter outlines for us here, that the evidence of the Holy Spirit work in our lives is when we look at these lists, that we honestly look at each word, each uh, quality, and does that characterize my life? Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In and of ourselves, that is impossible to do. Howard Hendricks always said, the Christian life isn't hard, it's impossible. And his point was, is that it's impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It's not something that we can do honestly and with integrity. Only God can do that in and through us. Christ in us is the hope of glory, self-control. Uh, Scientific American published an online article following uh, the shootings in 2010 down in Tucson, Arizona. 
And the title of this article was What Causes Someone to Act on Violent Impulses and Commit Murder? They asked the question why some people can control their anger and frustration while others lack self-control. A UCLA professor of psychiatry was interviewed, and he said these words. About a year ago, I was at the World Economic Forum, and we had a dinner with talks on intelligence. University of Michigan professor of social psychology Richard Nesbitt, the world's greatest authority on intelligence, plainly said that he'd rather have his son be high in self-control rather than intelligence. Quite an admission from an, uh, an academic guy. Uh, self-control is the key to a well-functioning life because our brain makes us easy to, are, are easily susceptible to all sorts of influences. Watching a movie showing violent acts predisposes us to act violently. Even just listening to violent rhetoric makes us more inclined to be violent. So self-control is an aspect of Christian character. It is the mark of a wise person. And thirdly, self-control affects the whole person. It affects the whole person. We tend to uh, compartmentalize our emotions, our intellect, our will, and yet we are a whole person designed and created to be what we are. The Bible talks about physical self-control. The Apostle Paul uses a sports metaphor to illustrate this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Where he writes, therefore I run in such a way, he's talking about the Greek games, the, the, the marathons, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The Apostle Paul talks about this physical self-control and all of us recognize that we must do that. If you are a person of self-control, you will be able to marshal restraint in the area of uh, sexual life, of exercise and eating habits, all of those things, and exercising self-control physically. It's also a mental discipline. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, or gird up your minds, get ready for life, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. In other words, self-controlled be in that idea of soberness. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It has mental overtones. If we're a person of self-control, it'll reign over uh, the lusts of the mind, the ambitions, obsessions, attitudes, pride, guilt, and our inferiority. And so it's a physical discipline, it's a mental discipline, and it's also a speech discipline. And of course, all we have to do is read the book of James to understand that, that our speech uh, is, needs to be self-controlled. Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. James 1.19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So there are some devotional overtones to this idea of self-control. We will fellowship with God. We will have priorities to spend time with him in his word, in prayer, and thinking and meditating on his truth. We'll also have, it'll also have social implications. It'll keep us from sinful conformity to the world.
You know, all of us, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look at it in some aspects, it's a lonely road we travel because many in the world, most in the world, do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if no one goes with you, still we will press on and go. Philip Keller, uh, a pastor and a theologian and writer, uh, uses this illustration about who we are as believers in Christ. When you think about the riches in Second Peter chapter 1 that Christ has given us, the implantation of these qualities through the power of the Spirit, our cooperation with the Spirit, that we need to remember that God is at work in us and through us. Philip Keller says that imagine that you're a billionaire. Uh, that would be hard to imagine. But imagine you're a billionaire and you have three $10 bills in your wallet. And you take a cab in a larger city, and at the end of the ride, you, your, your fare is $8. You, have, you hand the cabbie one $10 bill, or you think you did, and later in the day, you look in your wallet, and you find out there's only one $10 bill left there, and you thought you had two. Uh, and so either you would say, either I dropped a $10 bill somewhere, or I gave the taxi driver two bills mistakenly. What are you going to do? Keller asks, are you going to get all upset? Are you going to go to the police and demand they search the city for the cab driver? Are you going to be a, a just shrug, or what are you going to do? You're a billionaire. You lost $10, so what? You're too rich to be concerned about that kind of loss. You know, in all of our lives, each week brings a different set of circumstances. This week, somebody may criticize you. Somebody, uh, something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't go the way you wanted it to happen. And these are real losses in a real life. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Will these setbacks uh, disrupt your contentment with life? Keller asks, will you shake your fist at God, toss and turn at night? If so, I submit that it's because you don't know how truly rich you are. If you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out at people for hurting your feelings, you might call it a lack of self-control or a lack of self-esteem, and that it is. But more fundamentally, Keller goes on to write, you have totally lost touch with your identity. As a Christian, you're a spiritual billionaire, and you're wringing your hands over $10. We need to remember who we are in Christ, remember what he has done for us, and that he is providing for us, and we have all the riches in heaven, and we can be self-controlled in these times. I've mentioned these before, but... Our struggles in life, our temptations, our challenges in life are inevitable. But as one author said, destruction is optional. First of all, remember that your character should always be stronger than your circumstances. First Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Secondly, remember that your struggles always lead to strength if we allow it. And we know all things... God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8. Thirdly, remember that God's timing is always perfect. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11. And finally, remember that God will never leave your side. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, God goes with you. He will never leave you 
nor forsake you. If you've never read a biography about Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, she has some great insights and great things to say, and I would commend that work to you. But she wrote these words. It's really a prayer, and let me close with Amy Carmichael's prayer. Lord, harden me against myself, the coward with pathetic voice who craves for ease and rest and joy, Myself, arch-traitor to myself, my hollowest friend, my deadliest foe, my clog wherever and whatever road I go. At this time, if the men would come up who are going to help serve 